I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Alex McLaren. I'm an actor and I've worked as a communications coach since 2002. Now so much business is being conducted remotely, the ways in which we talk, present, build relationships and connect is changing. In this podcast, I want to explore all those issues and prove to you that no matter who you are, you can talk to anyone. Hello and welcome to You Can Talk To Anyone, the podcast in which we open the bonnet on our communications engine. I'm Alex McLaren. And I'm Tom Zelensky. And this week, I just wanted to think about our own sort of personal histories as communicators, the different places we come from, and particularly the people whose way of communicating had an impact on us uh, and possibly even an influence um, and uh, we, we could simply take turns talking about them. Uh, because this was my idea, I've got a whole list of people. It might be interesting to think what kind of patterns come up, and so please look out for them, Tom, because you'll notice things that maybe I don't. So the first person that I thought of, um, and, and I, I noticed that a lot of these are from quite a, quite a long time ago, Okay, so these might have been sort of formative influences, uh, and maybe I'm less open these days, I don't know. Um, but this was a teacher at my school. Okay. Don't know what your school was like, Tom, uh, but mine was a state Catholic school in Preston. It was basically like Grange Hill. <laughs> uh, at the time, the Grange Hill was on television. Was Grange Hill a Catholic school? Oh, no, it wasn't Catholic. No, exactly. Okay, fair enough. So the, so the Catholic... My school was probably more like Grange Hill. My school was a North London Comprehensive. Yes, okay, fair enough. Yours was even more like Grange yeah. Hill than mine, but mine was not like Hogwarts. Right. Or, uh, you, know, <laughs> you disappoint me, Alex. Yeah, or, or, or Hill Valley High School in right. Back to the Future. You know, I'm talking about that, that particular contest. So you have to imagine there's a playing field, and it's rainy. It was full of the typical rough-and-tumble teenagers. And... I liked some of the teachers. I didn't like the PE teachers. Um, some of the teachers I found annoying and patronizing. But the man I'm going to talk about is called Mr. Kelly. Okay. And Mr. K uh, Frank Kelly, I think was his name. And he was the, the head of the fifth year. So this was 11 to 16 year olds. It wasn't a sixth form at the school. Um, but the biggest kids in the school were 16 years old. And I noticed that he managed to communicate very comfortably with people that were having a very, very difficult time with other teachers in the school. He managed to connect to them. Uh, and there was a guy I knew called, there was a lad in my class called Darren. And Darren, he'd been playing truant. <laughs> so he'd been absent from school. And so if you are head of the year, then you have disciplinary responsibilities. And I remember we were walking from the fifth year block to the changing rooms. And I remember Mr. Kelly seeing Darren, who was part of our group. I remember him with a big grin on his face, throwing his arms wide and saying, 
Darren, he said. And there was this real sense of, oh my God, something really interesting is about <laughs> to happen. And he went, come here, Darren, with a big grin, like kind of like, it was almost like a kind of a joke version of a cartoon wolf. He said, so Darren, we've missed you in the last few <laughs> weeks. Um, and I remember seeing this. So the, just the shift from someone I, I knew as somebody who I, I found personally quite threatening. I remember his shoulders going up and his head going down. He was quite clear who the boss was, but also this massive smile breaking out over Darren's face. And he went, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I've been, uh, I've been, I've been ill, sir. And Mr. Kelly, I remember just laughing and in front of all the other kids who were just astonished by this interaction because it was so different from the, the models of telling off that people are familiar with from school or sort of military environments. He, I just remember him laughing. He said, ha, you've not been ill. You've been skiving, haven't you, Darren? <laughs> um, and and I, what was just amazing was this was quite clearly a sort of a, uh, it was asserting a particular relationship. I'm the boss and you're my charge. But this wasn't a threatening version of that. It was actually, it was a way of doing it which actually made him feel safer and happier than uh, than, than one which didn't acknowledge that there was a kind of almost like an awareness that this way of having the conversation said this is a game and you and I are actually equals. There's a sort of, there, was, there were inverted commas around it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And it, it, there was just this incredibly, it was so clear and yet it was so unusual and I don't think I'd seen it before. Being at school and considering naughty children, mm. indeed some of our listeners may have been themselves <laughs> naughty children, although they're usually in the minority, so statistically mm. it's less likely. But it raises this question of where power comes from mm. and what really naughty children discover is that the teachers have only as much power as the children, the children are prepared to give them. Will give them yeah. And that's a really uncomfortable truth for all concerned. Mm. When the child discovers, they can just turn around and say, no, mm. I'm not going to do that. Well, that'll be 100 lines, which I won't which write. Which I won't write, yes. Then it'll be a <laughs> detention that I won't show up to. Mm. And then the only weapon, the only sanction which the teachers have left is expulsion or exclusion. Yeah, the, the, which is the, a weird punishment. So, so weird. I mean, the, 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 there's this, uh, and also there's the there is within it. There's all kinds of, I think, very threatening things for the adults. Is it reverse psychology would exclude you up. Well, no, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. No, you won't. I'm going to shut up every day. day. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, but, it, but yes, but there's also this, this, this. Uh, um, it can be very threatening for the person who's trying to assert that power structure because it, if it, it assumes that other people will agree that all our incentives are valid ones and not at all arbitrary, um, and uh, and and are meaningful because actually to, to to challenge someone's authority isn't just to sort of to test the limits of a system of doing things on a daily basis. For some people, it actually actually threaten their very foundations of their own identity because they are very wedded to their view of the universe and their incentives. But we really do fear other people's disapproval. Yeah. It's the reason why typically people don't shoplift mm. and don't steal and don't play truant. It's not so much that... Uh, they fear the practical reprisals. They think they'll go to prison because they probably won't. Mm. But the shame of yeah. being caught shoplifting, yeah. the humiliation is almost too much to bear. 
it's an interesting question about people who end up in in trouble, well, in prison particularly. I mean, a lot of violence in jail when they start digging under it is to do with a, a kind of a displaced shame. It's a, it's, a, it's a more palatable alternative, I think, to quite a lot of violent criminals to the internalized shame that very often they've had to, that, that, that's been part of what built that very dysfunctional uh, psychology. Now, your story reminded me mm. of something else, and I haven't thought about this for years. Mm. But when I was at school, we had a new headmaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this new headmaster was not a teacher who'd been promoted. Mm. He was somebody brand new to the school. Mm. And like a lot of people who come in new, there were things that he was happy with, and there mm. were things that he wanted to change. And one of the things he wanted to change was the fact that he thought uh, that the school uniform had over many years decayed. <laughs> Uh, so it wasn't really given the deference which he thought it was owed. Oh, he yeah. wanted to tighten up the rules. Yeah, yeah. He no, you to see smarten this. people up and have everybody looking a lot nicer to the outside world. Yes. So uh, this school did have a sixth form. So the youngest kids would have been in, I guess, 10 or 11. And we'd have gone right the way through to A-level. So people leaving school at 18. Mm. All right. Uh, so it was the upper and lower fifth in which mm. you did your GCSEs or uh, O-levels. Mm-hmm as they once were, and then in the upper and lower sixth is where you would do your A-levels, and then you go off to university. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sixth form had its own private sixth form common room, mm-hmm. and the sixth form was not obliged to a uniform at all. Mm-hmm. There were various things, I think, you know, if you turned up wearing nothing but speedos, probably you'd be sent home, <laughs> but uh, there was no uniform. Mm-hmm. Everything up to upper fifth, yep. there was uniform. And this guy's coming in halfway through the year, so before I tell you <laughs> what his implementation was, what would you do? Is there any detail that you'd add mm. as you consider how you're going to roll out the imposition of higher uniform standards across the school? Okay, first of all, it's important that, that you know I, I personally have no sympathy with school uniforms. Sure. So, okay, but um, I think if I was in this... There's a benefit school uniform, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah, no, 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 happy it, it to. It can be, mm. it's not guaranteed to be, but it can be a useful kind of social leveller. And in a comprehensive school where there are people from a very wide variety of social backgrounds, it can be very useful to have everybody everybody dressing more or less the same. And once again, that works better the stricter the uniform policy is. Yes, I've heard this um, fallacy before. And and it was my experience that at secondary school, poor children were mocked mercilessly, even though we were all wearing the same uniform. And it was pretty strict as far as uniform was concerned. Kids will always winkle that shit out, Tom. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I do do appreciate that uh, that theory. No, I think in his position, what I would probably do was I would not do anything in the middle of the year. I think I would probably wait um, until the summer holidays when the mums and dads are going shopping again. Um, So, so I would certainly hang fire and continue to repeatedly take the temperature in order to figure out precisely what changes I wanted to institute. Yes, I don't think there are benefits and drawbacks to that. Okay. I think one drawback is you lose the ability to stamp your authority on the situation as soon as you arrive. Oh, but that, that implies that I would not be stamping authority in other ways. No. Uh, but uh, yeah, fair this enough. Is the, this is the only thing I can yeah. remember about this okay. new headmaster coming. What he did do was he... So he did institute the policy mm. in the middle of the school year, but he completely excluded... The upper fifth. Right. Because they were about to leave. Exactly. Yeah, they were either going to leave or they were going to yeah. go to the sixth yeah, form where there was yeah. no uniform rules. Buying so, a new blazer. Exactly. Sort of, he knew yeah, that wasn't going to yeah, work. It's going to annoy the mums and dads. fight a battle he wasn't going to be able to win. Yeah, no, fair enough. But everyone up to the lower fifth, the new uniform regulations came in at the beginning of that term. It's, it's interesting that the, that the relationship with 
the children within a school does change according to the degree to which they are growing up. And I think that was what's, um, I mean, in a practical sense that you've just described, but also the emotional sense in the way that uh, Mr. Kelly managed to, uh, to deal with people. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was thinking of the uh, second influence, um, which I think was really important to me. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, this woman is the mother of one of my pals from college. Um, and not only is she that woman's mother, but I lived in their house for a while. Her name is Susie. Professionally, her background was in um, literature and children's publishing. So we were always likely to be very sympathetic. I mean, I love this woman dearly. The, the, the thing that's, that I suppose for me was quite defining, quite apart from her being Claire's mum, was that she's married to a very, very wealthy philanthropist and business person. And so she spends quite a lot of her time giving away very, very large sums of money. So this is, this is very quite an unusual person, in, I think, in many people's experience, in anyone's experience, and certainly unique in mine. Anyway, Susie is always incredibly interested in you. And she's quite, she, she's, she's physically very open, okay? So she hugs you and she holds you. Uh, when you arrive at her house, okay, when she opens the door, she is just very, very pleased to see you. And this is, and this is, there's no um, artifice about any of this. She is, I don't know whether, I, th I think this is not true, everyone, okay? She's really interested in everybody she meets. She's curious about this person and but, but not in a way that feels intrusive. So she listens to the things you tell her when she's asked you a question. And so no, you could argue that maybe it's her place in my life that makes her that so powerful. Surely this is just normal, good behavior. Or you could argue that it's because of her a peculiar and unusual status as, a, as an agent of giving, which means that I, I pay particular attention there. But it, it's not that because I remember <laughs> seeing her almost in a sort of a professional mode when uh, at parties at which one of her jobs is when she's on the board of various art institutions, she has to scare up other cash to match the donations that she's giving. And she's really, really good at that. And you can see that she is making no distinction between how she talks to a teenager and how she talks to 
some captain of business with uh, access to a big sponsorship account. I'm not saying that she doesn't speak to those people differently, but she is not distinct, distinguishing whether how those people are interesting or important. She accords the same importance to everybody. And I remember thinking that that, although it's just a sort of a, it expresses itself just as the way she talks to other people and the kind of questions she asks, how she listens to people, how she enjoys what they bring. But it has almost like this political dimension to it, I think. Um, and I think one of the challenges we have when we're trying to figure out how do I communicate in this situation or that situation is that that's, that sense of what is it that I should be consistent about, okay? I don't want to like like absolute consistency can be can be so bizarre. Like I would never talk to a total stranger as if I was talking to my best friend. I would certainly never talk to a new friend as if I was talking to an old friend. You know, so we 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 have to be very precise about it. But the but but if at the heart of it is a sort of a, a kind of almost a <laughs> sort of fundamental political vision that every individual is equally interesting and important. I think that that can motivate you to be more successful, I guess, in the way you grow a positive relationship with those people through the way you communicate. Yeah, I mean, we, you're talking about character as much as anything else. And uh, we sometimes jokingly say to people, we can teach you style. Mm. We trust that you have the substance to back it up. But actually, mm. bothering yes. to... <laughs> Flex your style mm. to take account of someone else's likes and dislikes also speaks to the fact that you have some character, you have some substance. Yeah. And this is making me think about the last full-time job that I had, mm. which is quite a long time ago, yes. Jonathan. <laughs> during the dot-com boom. Uh, so I got a job working for dot-com when that was the most exciting thing you could imagine and I had share options and everything. And my history with this company went through two phases. Mm. Phase one, expansion. Mm -hmm. Companies going places, all right? So I'm part of a small web page designing team mm. doing stuff in HTML and Photoshop. I think it was three of us. And then there's a, a sales team and a kind of journalism team providing content, almost all paid for, mm. and a tech team who is making the technology behind the site work. And we're all sort of... I'm kind of in the middle of those two. Yeah. So I've got to take the information provided by the journalism team and the all the stuff from the back end and make it all look pretty. And then a new guy came in who was basically put in charge of the three of us. And he was about the same age as us, or maybe I think a little bit older. In my mind now, as I look back, he seems very young, but I'm now very old. Mm. And quite physically slight and quite softly spoken. But my God, he had character. Mm. My God. And I can remember in the first week, as well as having just like a general get to know you, mm. he took each of the three of us out for lunch. Mm -hmm. Not a very lavish lunch, you know, which was just kind of, there was a, like a, a place across the road that did pasta and chips and things like that. <laughs> and we just had a chat about who we were and how we come to be there. And he asked me, and I assume he asked this to all three of us, uh, he said, I can understand that you might have wanted this job, but you might be surprised it was given to me. <laughs> he just said it, Alex. <laughs> he just came out and said it. And he said it without any combativeness, mm. but it sounded like, I want to know how you feel about this. Mm. And we had a conversation about it. And actually, I didn't think it had crossed my mind. Mm. So in a way, it was a big risk for him to bring it up, but yes. he, was just, he just wanted it out in the open. He wanted to know what the deal was. Yeah. And the reason I know 
he really had character is because the second phase of my time there was contraction. Uh-oh. Because, and I'll cut a very long story short, we were bought by a bank that didn't know what to do with us. Mm. And so over the course of about a year, a large multifaceted team of 70 or so people got whittled down to a technical team of about 12. <laughs> and there was literally three months of my life where no one was providing any work for me to do. So I would turn up, clock on, not that there was a clock, but, you know, show my face mm. and do nothing all day. Play poker, mm. <laughs> uh, uh, listen to audiobooks, you know, just nothing. And it's a painful position if anyone's yeah. in that stage of work. But what this guy was doing, wherever he possibly could, was talking to other parts of the business that had bought us and trying to find work for us to do. Oh, because he knew that if this continued, we were all going to be let go as soon as possible. Be, yeah, be out of and he job. knew that probably the team as a whole wasn't going to survive, and therefore mm. his role as the leader of this team wasn't going to survive. Yeah. But he thought, if I can find work for some of these people here, I can, we can all hang on a little bit longer. If I can place my people, yeah. then my time will have been will not have been entirely wasted. Yeah, no, that's heroic. I do think that... Uh, that, that James, if you're listening, hello. Uh, yeah, so, so salute, James. Um, I think it, it, you know what people are doing under pressure is really a fascinating thing to see. I'm going <laughs> to. I'll tell a story. This is not so much about what Susie did as what she didn't do. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, I think it's okay to tell this. I'm going to anonymize it enough. I remember one occasion uh, when we were having. Uh, there was a special dinner. And I was invited to supper, as was Claire, because it was it was it was some academics from our old university college came to supper, and he was a philosophy don. Uh, his wife was, in, I think, possibly more qualified than him. She was a sort of a macrobiology professor or what have you. Uh, and I remember we were so we were doing something a little bit more formal than typically happened at tea time in this house. Um, we were all standing around with glasses of wine, having a chat. Like, you know, there's circumstances where there's a circle of people with a glass of wine who don't know each other particularly well. And anyone listening to this, you know, whenever you go to a work networking event, it is very, very much like that. Trying to find common ground. Oh, all of that. Living and in fear of that moment where the conversation just sort of peters Yes, there's out. a moment of quiet, you know, how do we handle that? And, and I do think, quite, you know, in those circumstances, I'm always advising people, like, just keep letting it happen. Don't panic, what have you. Um, but you must remember that four of these people, were in their 50s, and two of them were in our early 20s. And I remember in, in one of the pauses, the, the lady guest let out a, a fart like a motorbike, Tom. <laughs> and, but she didn't acknowledge it at all, or blush, or mention it. And I think my eyes must have certainly hurtled over to Claire and then looked away kind of into the middle distance. Um, and I just remember Susie carrying on the conversation like nothing had happened <laughs> at all. And the conversation carried on and it was, she, it was just this, what possible, like, like how, how do we deal with this? Now I can imagine less formal circumstances or people who knew each other better or what have you in which something something so utterly human and everyday is kind of brought up, dealt with, and never mentioned again. But this was never mentioned at all. And I was I was very, very impressed because I don't think that could have happened unless you had somebody who was very, very uh, confident about how to manage such a, a sort of an early contretemps with amazing grace. <laughs> and again, I've, I've never spoken to... Susie about it. 
But I do remember later that evening when everybody had gone to bed saying to Claire, Claire, did I imagine this? <laughs> but having to go back to the beginning of the evening. And she said, oh, yes, yes, you're right. And at that point, I think we started laughing and the tears flowed for about 45 minutes. Uh, but I, it's, again, the, it's, it's, it's her thinking about... Um, and making really disciplined choices about what is the best thing for the other people in this circumstance. And of course, it's an impossible situation. And I think on balance, I remember thinking how she made an incredibly accurate as well as a generous call. Do you know the story about Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller? <laughs> um, I know lots of stories about them, but I don't know necessarily this one. Go for I think it. I got this one right. Yeah. So uh, Marilyn Monroe is going to meet Arthur Miller's family for the first time. And they live in this, like, I guess it must have been not quite a tenement, but like, you know, a small crowded apartment in New York. Yeah. Small rooms all next to each other, is including he... the bathroom being right next door to his parents' bedroom. Got it. So in the middle of the night, Marilyn Monroe has to go and use the bathroom and is aware that she may be going to wake other people up and acutely embarrassed about what they might hear. So before she begins her business, she turns the taps on as hard as she can in order to, to drown any more personal noises out. Uh, and then when she's finished, washes her hands, turns the taps off and goes back to bed. And then after she's gone, Arthur Miller's asking his parents, what did you think of her? And they say, oh, Arthur, darling, you know, she's, she's absolutely sensational. You're incredibly lucky. But Arthur, she pisses like a horse. <laughs> oh, God. It's uh, it's 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 such a strange thing, that, and like ultimately, you get to the place with the people you love, in which all of these incredibly basic human things they just don't matter at all, no. and yet most of the time we aren't. We we have to engage with the world beyond that circle, and I think that's where so many of our anxieties about authenticity and, uh, and identity and a lot of those things come from is uh, is trying to extend that circle in which we can be more, I think, franker and more confident about precisely how human we are. And I, I think maybe there are some misconceptions about the way, say, people from the comedy world do it, because what they're doing is often talking about their rawest vulnerabilities and most human side, you know, which feels almost like, my God, you're making yourself so incredibly vulnerable. But they're doing it in a very particular context and in a particular way. They're often doing it from an incredibly high status mode of addressing people, looking their audience in the eye, you know, dominating a big empty space, thousands of people sitting in the dark looking at them. They're, they're working out a relationship. They're working out the engineering of the, those exposures in a way which actually validates everybody in an ideal world rather than just the comic on the stage. Yeah. So I think it can sometimes feel like, oh, well, everybody should be able to do that all of the time. But I think that that's, uh, it's a misconception. And I think you're, if you're feeling, God, why does it look easy for that person um, where it doesn't feel easy for me? Uh, please, <laughs> you're, you're the normal one. Yeah. Um, and uh, and just like uh, Marilyn Monroe, you might feel the urge to put the taps on every now and then. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've got any particular kind of inspirations of your own, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch with your stories about the people who have influenced and the occasions that have influenced your communication style. Uh, we do work with people on networking, on negotiating, on communicating at work. Um, so please do get in touch with us if you're interested in those services. I'm alex at the-spontaneity-shop.com. And I'm Tom at the-spontaneity-shop.com. And we run workshops both in the real world and over Zoom. So whatever your needs, hopefully, we have something which can suit. 
Thank you for joining us. And please do like and subscribe any uh, of our podcasts on uh, Acast or Apple or whatever your podcast machinery uh, you like, uh, because it will help us find new listeners. And do join us next week. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. You have been listening to You Can Talk to Anyone with Alex McLaren and Tom Selinsky. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Selinsky. You Can Talk to Anyone is distributed exclusively by Acast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.